there will be new rules, which is in general, there will be no more film criticism. Uh, film criticism was forbidden because uh, all the cinema which came out was under censorship of Goebbels. So for sure there was nothing, nothing to criticize. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Imagine you had the chance to work in a movie industry that was like another Hollywood, turning out musicals and romances and comedies and adventure films, with glamorous stars and big budgets and even their own three-strip color process. There's just one Twilight Zone twist. In this episode, I talk to Rudiger Suxland, director of the new documentary, Hitler's Hollywood. Be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at iTunes. Thanks. flamenco dance in luscious color. It could be from a Hollywood film, maybe one of those South American ones with Alice Faye or Betty Grable. But as narrator Udo Kier says in Hitler's Hollywood, there's something hysterical about it. A flamenco Goethe Damerung in which dancers pirouette to their deaths. Siegfried Krakauer's From Caligari to Hitler set the discourse for film historians on the pre-war German cinema by arguing that all German films before the Nazis are in some way anticipating the Nazi era. Sometimes that's certainly true. We know Hitler was influenced by Fritz Lang's Die Nibelungen and Metropolis. Other times, well, maybe a vampire is just a vampire. But Rudiger Suxland's Hitler's Hollywood portrays Germany's film industry during the Nazi years as a big-budget fever dream, mixing outright propaganda with escapism in all genres, subtly shifted toward fascist ends. These films didn't predict the Nazi regime, they helped sell it. I spoke with Suxland about these films and filmmakers, most of them unknown in English-speaking countries. Because they're so little known, and assuming you haven't seen the documentary yet, I've annotated our conversation in the show post at nitrateville.com, so you can follow along as you listen. Well, let's set the scene by talking about uh, the Nazis taking over the motion picture industry right when they came to power in 1933. What was that like? Yeah, well, what was that like? First of all, I think there was a big insecurity and a lot of fear in the whole society. Definitely, some of the Germans hoped uh, this would be like a nightmare uh, which is over after a few weeks, uh, because in the years before, uh, the governments changed very quickly. 
And uh, there were a lot of governments. It was a very unstable situation due to the world economic crisis after the stock crash in 1929. And uh, uh, so, so some were optimists. But the clever ones uh, knew immediately this would uh, be a big change. This would be the end of the democratic Germany. And uh, it would be a very long uh, night of terror and of dictatorship. So for the film industry, um, in, there were some films which uh, were in the cinemas. They were immediately banned, like uh, the last film by Fritz Lang. Uh, it was uh, Testament Doctor uh, Mabuse. Yeah, third Mabuse film, exactly. And uh, this, and it was a kind of this film was kind of uh, analogy to uh, to uh, the Nazis already, like uh, his film before M as well was a uh, murder in the city was as well a film about uh, the the whole state of mind before. So Fritz Lang was immediately banned. Some others as well. But other directors who were just in the making of the, of the film, which was planned before Hitler came to power, they were allowed to finish in general. And a few, uh, few weeks uh, later, there was a new cultural minister, which was Dr. Josef Goebbels. And uh, I, I guess he's quite famous as well in the States. Sure. And he stayed in power as the minister for propaganda uh, during, during the whole period of the Third Reich, so for the next 12 years. And he was specifically interested in film. Uh, in, in cinema, he was quite uh, well informed. He uh, knew Hollywood cinema. He wanted to copy Hollywood in a way. He knew as well the good European cinema, French and Scandinavian and Italian cinema. And as well, he knew Soviet propaganda uh, films. So. Uh, it was quite clear for him from the first uh, days on that uh, he wanted to use cinema as the main media for propaganda. It was one of the two big mass medias, for sure radio was the other one. Cinema, specifically sound cinema, was uh, kind of the of a new media of that time. Uh, sound cinema existed only four years. So there was, uh, on the one hand, a big hype uh, around that. On the other hand, uh, they were not so secure about their techniques. They had to experiment a lot. For instance, sound did not work so well uh, if uh, it was about talking, dialogue. So for that reason, music films and films with a lot of music or musicals uh, were very popular. Uh, they just worked better in a technical way. Um, and Goebbels, uh, immediately, he, uh, he never published uh, this, uh, this kind of rule system of the new propaganda cinema, but he gave certain speeches uh, in front of the whole film community, which was 80-90% based in Berlin. So uh, he, uh, he said that uh, there will be new rules, which is in general, there will be no more film criticism. Uh, film criticism was forbidden because uh, all the cinema which came out was under censorship of Goebbels. So for sure, there was nothing nothing to criticize from his point of view. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and then uh, he just wanted a kind of information service. He spoke, uh, he used the word service. So we should be careful if we use, uh, if we speak about service today. Uh, critic is no servant and should not give service, but uh, criticism uh, should be independent. Um, so the whole film system changed within the next uh, weeks and months, which means that Jews were banned uh, from the film industry. 
So for many Jewish directors and stars, film stars, and for all the staff in, in, uh, in, in all the departments, uh, they, are, uh, where <laughs> they, they had, had no chance to work anymore. Uh, some of them left the country for that reason. Uh, others changed uh, their, their profession. And uh, the, the famous people, like Fritz Lang, uh, they, changed, they, they immigrated. Uh, Fritz Lang, for instance, he was an exception in that way that Goebbels, uh, um, he, uh, he loved a lot of the Fritz Lang movies like Nibelung. He really admired that. And he wanted him to be uh, like uh, something like uh, the general director of the uh, German film industry. He offered him a good job and the opportunity to do a lot of films, but he refused. Fritz Lang refused, and he he traveled out of the country within the next days. And uh, so, uh, as well, other stars like Marlene Dietrich, uh, she uh, was emigrated already because she wanted to work in Hollywood. She started her Hollywood career, but uh, she got offers to come back because uh, Goebbels needed big stars. Greta Garbo uh, had left to Hollywood. He wanted a new Garbo. So, uh, in a way, the whole pattern of uh, filmmaking was redesigned. There was a big censorship, for sure, but uh, in general, it was totalitarian cinema, which means it was more or less all state cinema. There were no more, in the, within some years at least, there were no more independent uh, studios and production companies. And it was a totally controlled cinema in the way that uh, Goebbels himself and a few members of his staff, they read all the scripts in advance. They took part in the casting process. They were even casting the script writers. But uh, then the director, who would be the best to do this film in the Nazi way, and uh, of course uh, they uh, said they they they, they uh, controlled the casting of the actors and and all that. So and then uh, the the finished project uh, they had to, to be shown. Sometimes uh, Goebbels even re-edited uh, more or less uh, as a person. He re-edited or he gave advice in the editing process of a film. And uh, if uh, he was not uh, happy with the result, uh, films uh, had been forbidden. And, and this were very bad news, of course, for the directors, because sometimes it meant that uh, directors were not allowed to do any more films. Um, but as well, even the producers, for instance, of the last Fritz Lang film, of the Mabuse film, they uh, offered uh, to Goebbels a re-edited version, which he saw in his private uh, home. In his private home, he had a small cinema, uh, but uh, he did not allow uh, even the, the second uh, cut uh, to, be, to be shown in the German cinemas. So... In general, uh, you can say that uh, Josef Goebbels was kind of the only studio boss, the big studio boss of the one big Nazi studio. We know UFA, the name of the UFA film company, but there were as well some other companies, but they all came together uh, in the, they were all state uh, companies. So it's just a name, a different label, like Tobis, for instance. Uh, and, and in 42, it was all UFA. 
called Ufa. So what was the output of the studios once the Nazis took over? I mean, we see propaganda films like Triumph of the Will or Hitler Junger Quacks from that time, but they must have just had like a slate of regular movies too. Uh, so the general, uh, the purpose of those films uh, was for sure, uh, on the one hand, propaganda, political propaganda, but that is not as easy as it sounds. Uh, you uh, make a propaganda film for the fanatically convinced Nazis, but as well for those you want to convince, for the skeptics, uh, for your enemies, which you know you cannot convince, but uh, you want to spread fear and to keep them silent. Uh, so uh, some of the films were for distraction, many of the films uh, were for distraction and for escape. But other films were for a way of motivation, uh, motivation of, uh, of the Nazi ideology, motivation of family ideals and family value ideals of, of the Nazis, but as well motivation for war and sometimes for murder. So we know that uh, we all know a film like Jesus, which was for sure a film, a kind of uh, motivation picture for murdering Jews and for hatred. So uh, we have different types of cinema and different tasks and uh, goals uh, for the certain films. And as well, we have different audiences because as the, in the years uh, until the war, in '39, it was as well about the image of the Third Reich. They wanted uh, to provide an image of a liberal peaceful, open-minded country with order, with purity, of course, no Jewish uh, citizens there, but uh, no crimes. Uh, they wanted, in a way, to hide uh, what did it mean to live under a dictatorship. And to put it together, they wanted to uh, sell a German way of life as an alternative to the American and liberal democratic way of life. Yeah. And uh, as well, they wanted just to earn money. The Nazi Reich needed money. So they wanted films which were sellable in abroad. Uh, also for that reason, uh, they were not interested in uh, putting too much ideology in the most of the films. They needed stars, not just German stars, but international stars. So for instance, they were looking for a new Garbo and they had uh, certain uh, Swedish and Scandinavian women like Zara Lerner, quite famous star, like Christina Söderbaum. You have, all, you have seen them all in my movie. And as well, we know today that Ingrid Bergman, uh, before she came to Hollywood, uh, she did one film in, uh, in Berlin under the Nazis, and she had a contract for even more films, but she wanted to leave the country then after the first one. And the first one is uh, Vier Gesellen is not a bad movie, we have to say. It's quite modern for that time. And she's playing already the main main part. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about the industry here, because we're, you know, on a artistic level, I mean, it's, it's a very high quality. The films look good. Um, often they seem very appealing. I thought you made an interesting comment in the film, though, about them, which is that there's no such thing as irony in them. You know, you think of yeah. some of the people who left... Germany at this time, someone like Billy Wilder, there's no place for a Billy Wilder in this system. As slick as the films are, they have to show a certain view of life in which it's all positive and futuristic. And and even when they make, uh, there's that um, 
Glückskinder, which you describe as kind of the version of a uh, of like an It Happened One Night or something, a screwball yeah. comedy, yeah. you can't really yeah. do screwball without irony. Yeah, this irony was lacking. Um, because uh, maybe under the Nazi uh, rule, there was no no place for irony. Irony means a way of double bind uh, or double mind, a sense for ambiguity. But uh, Nazism, fascism, and dictatorship in general is all about black and white, about uh, uh, clarity. You have enemies and you have friends, one of us or one of the other side. So uh, this kind of, they wanted to get rid of all ambiguity. And uh, so in a way, they wanted to get rid of irony and of, uh, of irritation, of uh, insecurity. What they offered, one of the biggest uh, things that they offered and one of the most temptuous things was safety and security. And... Uh, so uh, the films had to provide that feeling. If we look at those comedies, which are in a way funny, but there's always a certain stiffness in them. Uh, they they seem because uh, they are not they are not easygoing. They they never let it go. Uh, there is never a kind of excess in them. Uh, it's everything is controlled, and this control you can sometimes you see it, but at least you can feel it. During the war, it is changing a little bit. During the war, there is, uh, because it was less controlled, and as well the films are less controlled, and they, they uh, in a way, um, you, you might say, uh, I hope it does not sound cynicist, but Goebbels had more important things to do <laughs> than to control all, uh, all the films, and he had the feeling, okay, we have to offer... Uh, to our people uh, some uh, more interesting films. And by the way, Goebbels, he was always in his private sessions uh, together with Hitler and uh, with some other people of the Nazi leadership uh, group, uh, they were more or less every night watching at least one film. Sometimes Hitler saw six films per day. And uh, for Goebbels, it was part of his work to see all the German films at least. And then as well, he saw... Uh, during the war, he saw the films of the occupied territories, and uh, before the war, he saw the production of Hollywood, for instance, as well during the war. Uh, we know that, uh, and I hope you know too, that American films, Hollywood films, were allowed to be shown, not everyone, uh, of course, but many films were allowed to be shown until America entered the war. Right. So even in 1941, we have some Hollywood films, for sure not The Big Dictator by Chaplin, but other films. We have, uh, they are shown in, uh, in Germany, and one of the biggest stars uh, and, and uh, the most appreciated stars uh, for German viewers was Shirley Temple. <laughs> she was quite popular in, in Germany. So uh, the, this just as a footnote. So um, Goebbels knew many of the films from the Americans, uh, even uh, one of the latest Nazi films, Kohlberg. Kohlberg was designed to be a kind of German answer to Gone with the Wind. And uh, it was as well about the lost cause and about the downfall of a, of a way of life, in a way a Swain song to a certain Germany because it's, uh, about, it's a war film uh, which is set in the times of Napoleon Bonaparte. So 
um, Goebbels uh, knew in a way uh, about the power of uh, Hollywood cinema and as well about French cinema with the humor and uh, about the quality of, of those uh, cinematographies. He knew all of the genre noir films uh, up to that time and he loved them. And he knew quite well that the usual German films did not have this quality. Uh, he knew that he had loved Fritz Lang, Josef von Sternberg, Lubitsch, and Murnau to Hollywood, and there was no Nazi Murnau or Nazi Fritz Lang, that's for sure, even when Veit Harlan is a good director. Uh, but he's, he has not the quality of those big masters, and we don't have any uh, Griffiths, uh, for instance. We have no Renoir in, in the Nazi times. That's, that's clear. So they were always trying to get on a certain level, but usually they were failing. Uh, sometimes uh, it was uh, just a small failure, sometimes a bigger one. And uh, I think that uh, the humor, of course, uh, the, the films had humor. There was laughter in it. There were jokes in it. But there was no ambiguity. And even the screwball, uh, I, I, I would compare. The, I, I know that the film like Glückskinder, they wanted it to be a kind of a screwball comedy, but it was no screwball. It was not fast. And uh, maybe uh, the guy who reached closest uh, to uh, Hollywood style was as well a director who had the biggest distance to Nazi cinema. It was Helmut Keutner. Uh, in the film Wir machen Musik, uh, which I have some extracts uh, in my film as well, I think there is some irony. And there is uh, some, a lot of ambiguity and even quotes of the big review films of the Weimar Republic and uh, in a way, uh, this is a marvelous film. And uh, even when it has as well moments of, uh, of uh, let's say, uh, of, of Nazi values and of a very conservative look at uh, men and women relationship, but it has other parts as well. And so it was one of the most successful films in Nazi times as well. And Beutner did Große Freiheit Nummer 7, which is much more melancholic than the other one, but as well a very poetic and beautiful film with, uh, with women and men which are quite different to the Nazi ideals. Well, let's talk about some of the stars there, both the the female stars, which is interesting that so many of them, as you say, were Swedish or uh, Marika Rock was Hungarian and, and things like that. And also talk about someone like Hans Albers, who was an established star, as you say, the, the star of Freiheit uh, number no. seven. And, yep. and a very, and a kind of a, a star who maintained his own persona even as the as the Nazi film system came into being. Well, um, first of all, uh, the, the cinema in that time, in, uh, as far as I can tell, in all countries in the world, was a star cinema. So uh, the actors were much more important than today. Even today, they are important, but in general, we would we would uh, qualify films today as films made by certain directors. And as well, in the States, we have the auteurs. We have Paul Thomas Anderson or Scorsese or Soderbergh or people like that. 
uh, and uh, but in in uh, German cinema uh, even more than in French and American cinema in that time the directors seem to be not so important so it's uh, difficult to find a certain handwriting and uh, especially under uh, under the conditions of the Goebbels uh, star system or, or cinema system uh, something like a handwriting was not uh, easy to achieve. Uh, only a few directors, uh, I mentioned Koitner, who was in the system, against the system, but as well Veit Harlan, who was one of the biggest uh, Nazi star directors. Uh, he, he developed, for instance, and you can, you can find five, six more names who had a certain handwriting and a certain style that you could say there is a typical Harlan film or a typical Riefenstahl film for sure, then you have a typical, uh, uh, for instance, Liebenheiner, Wolfgang Liebenheiner, you have uh, quite typical films made by him as well. And, uh, and then we have some war directors, they did many war films in, in Nazi cinema. Uh, so, um, but mostly uh, the stars were important, the star, the name of the star on the poster was the reason to enter a cinema. And as well, the stars were beyond any politics and any ideology. Uh, I, for instance, I've read the memoirs uh, of, a, of a writer, Ilse Eichinger, Austrian, Jewish, a young girl in the late 30s. And she had to wear the yellow star. And in general, that, me, that meant she was not allowed to enter the cinema. But she did, secretly, hidden. She knew the, some people from the cinemas who let her in. Because she did that under risk for her own life, because she wanted to watch the stars. She was kind of addicted to Hans Albers or to Zara Leander. And uh, so were many, many people in that time. They wanted to see the stars over and over. So the stars were the candy to sell the bitter stuff as well, to sell the ideology and to sell uh, the war, to sell murder, to sell... Uh, hunger later during the war and uh, the, the bad life conditions. It was uh, as well a lot about distraction and escapism. So in the cinema, for two, two hours or even longer, you could uh, at least try to forget what was around. And uh, we cannot underestimate the importance of, uh, of film to distract and to, to uh, bring us into another world and specifically the under conditions of the dictatorship, brutal people, SS, Goebbels, Hitler, and then the war, the bombs, the attacks, the daily life with hunger and uh, rationalization of, of all the goods, uh, food, and so on. Uh, under those conditions, cinema was kind of a paradise, and it was kind of a counter-world. And it worked like that, and uh, Goebbels knew about uh, the role of cinema, and he used it quite, uh, quite clear and cold. So uh, we have to, that we can, uh, we can make, we can undi how, how can I say this? We can, we can say there are three periods of Nazi cinema. There was this beginning, uh, the first one or two years with uh, quite ideological films which uh, were a bit stupid and naive in the brutness uh, they were serving the ideology and then uh, the cinema became more and more clever and, uh, and uh, but it was uh, less about distraction 
uh, it was quite controlled and uh, it uh, was a bit more formatted and in the in the during the war uh, it had different uh, it was made for different goods one uh, different goals one goal was for sure to have films which you could show in abroad which you could show in the occupied territories and and then as well it was a cinema which was more or less targeted to the women which were at home so many films were just for women so they were on the one hand offering a beautiful man like Hans Albers and on the other uh, on the other hand they were offering more active uh, women and different women roles, different characters. So a woman in those later Nazi films was was much more active. She had a profession. Uh, she was in, in love affairs. She was the active part. Uh, sometimes we have a lot of films where we have a story about young girls, maybe serving in a hospital or in a radio station or so on, in a factory. So they had a professional life. And then they were meeting a soldier who was just on, uh, from the front on home holidays for a few days. And they are starting an affair. So the moral was much more liberal than it used to be. And, uh, and it was, in a way, uh, no, longer, um, on the, no longer this ideal Nazi moral, because the, the value system of the Nazis, for sure, it meant... Uh, marriage and uh, women, uh, a woman which was not working, but which was uh, bringing uh, one child after the other to life as a present to the Führer. So all this collapsed with the war. It did not work anymore. And uh, cinema during the war should be uh, and was a kind of a fantasy, but it was not the fantasy of Nazi ideology. It was a fantasy of escapism, of uh, of uh, beaming you away to a different world, this counter world. In some ways, it seems parallel to me to uh, film noir in America during that time, which was quite dark. And yet, what it's what's interesting about it is that the war vanishes. You have movies in which the war hardly seems to have happened or, or to be happening. Um, there's a famous thing in Double Indemnity where they had to guard the canned goods in the grocery store because people wouldn't have seen that many canned goods and they would have yeah. stolen them. Film is fulfilling that fantasy of escaping from the war for a moment. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, we as well. We have both in, in Nazi cinema. It is. Uh, we we don't have, or we have only a few films which were really dark, and as dark as the film noir. I think this was not allowed. And the film noir was quite new in, in that time, and it was as well influenced by the immigrants, which knew the German expressionist cinema. And this expressionist uh, part of the cinema history was more or less banned uh, during the Nazi times. We have a few films which uh, we could call film noirs in Nazi cinema, but these were exceptions. Uh, much uh, much uh, more popular were melodrams, which were as well dark, but in a different way. It was more about uh, pathetic uh, feelings and uh, about big emotions and about failed love stories, about the fate, which is more important and maybe bigger than any private uh, troubles. And uh, this was one. And then we have war films, for sure, in, in Nazi cinema, even before. 
but as well during the war we have many war films which were uh, serving heroism and serving heroes which were just the role models for the young boys and uh, women uh, but the young boys which had to go to the war maybe one year later well let's talk about that fatalism for a minute because that's a big theme of the film obviously and you have a a really good line about that early on where you say what kind of a nation is it that needs poets to be able to kill and to die that cinema was was romanticizing death so much coming into the film i'm thinking about you know siegfried krakauer talking about how everything in german cinema sort of predicts the Nazis, and I'm not convinced that that's always the case. I'm thinking there are American film, American war films that are similarly fatalistic. No, there's the the scenes you show are so much more. I mean, almost pornographic about death. There's, I think, it's Stukas yeah. where the guy gives this loving soliloquy about the happy death he's he's looking forward to and that's just yeah. so far beyond anything in american cinema yeah well uh there might be uh there might be something in the cultural history of germany uh which uh, leads to that and which has always been there uh, at least the poem this guy in the stuka film is quoting is a poem by hölderlin and hölderlin lived 120 years before the nazis he lived in the time of napoleon and of goethe so uh, even in that time we have in uh, the german romanticist uh, poets uh, we have a lot of this death wish and we have uh, a lot of this suicide thing maybe you know werther the novel by goethe which was quite popular because of the suicide uh, out of big emotion. And uh, there, were, there were copy suicides uh, in real life because uh, real people wanted to die like Werther. So we don't have, as far as I know, a novel with the same effect in English uh, Romanticism or in French Romanticism. So there might be some special uh, story uh, to tell about the, the German cultural history. And uh, as well, the skull, the skull of death, which was a symbol of the SS, uh, was not invented uh, by the SS, and it was not invented by pirates, uh, as uh, some people might think. It was invented by the Freikorps Lützow, which, was, uh, which were uh, partisans fighting, Prussian partisans fighting against Napoleon in the Napoleonic War, so in almost the same time like Hölderlin. And uh, they they had this black uh, uniforms with the skull uh, on on uh, one one point at this uniform. So, and as well at the helmet. And and uh, in a way, the SS uh, was kind of quoting or copying the Freikorps Lützow with that, and as well bringing it into uh, bringing the Nazism into the German tradition. In a way, the Nazis were always interested in uh, being uh, in, in in convincing the people that they were embedded in the german cultural history which is not as clear as it might think in a way they were revolutionaries but they came out of something and uh, as well uh, in in my film there is uh, the the kolberg the the copy of uh, of gone with the wind and we have a speech there by a prussian general and this Prussian general is even his body is quite similar to Goebbels, and Goebbels, uh, and he says uh, sometimes uh, we have to die uh, for a bigger task, 
and all in Kolbeck is about dying uh, for the fatherland. So, uh, and and this and he is quoting a poem, which is uh, by Theodor Körner, as well a romanticist poet out of the times of Napoleon and of Hölderlin. And this poem is uh, is as well recited in the most famous speech by Goebbels, which is the speech after Stalingrad in uh, in February 1943. He gives a big speech in the Berliner Sportpalast, where he's quoting exactly the same thing. Und Volk steh auf und sturm los. It's the speech of the total war. So all those ideas, they come out of a longer German tradition, and uh, well, as well, the death wish, it was, uh, it is embedded in the cultural tradition, but there is as well a very pragmatic uh, thought by the Nazis. The Nazis needed people willing to die. They were preparing a war quite uh, early on, and they were preparing a kind of revenge war for the defeat in the First World War. They wanted the Second World War to win. So, um, therefore, they needed people which, which were willing to give their life away for a bigger cause, for the fatherland. So uh, for those pragmatic reasons, they needed to prepare the whole society, the parents to let the children go, and the children, the sons, uh, to go. And uh, to, be, to be kind of convinced of it. And then as well, when the war began, Stukas is a film by 41, which is as well promoting the famous Stuka uh, fighter, fighting plane, um, but and, and kind of idealizing, heroizing uh, this Stuka warfare, which was quite a cruel warfare of part of the Blitzkrieg strategy. So um, as well, it is in this film when the first dead bodies came home, uh, it is about um, telling those who survive, the parents, the siblings, the sons and daughters, that uh, the boys and fathers and brothers were dying for a good cause. And it's kind of a beautiful death. And uh, so, uh, and it's kind of fate. Yeah, there is this, this uh, there is as well, we, we, all, we all, we are human beings, we know we have to die. So we might all have a certain, at a certain point in our soul or, or brain the idea, if we have to die, we should die for a good cause. Or we should not die at all. We should leave something behind for eternity. And this is something like that. Uh, they were appealing to the collective psyche that you want to fill the necessary death with some higher sense. Yeah. some higher value. And of course, they were perfectioning in the films, they were perfectioning this idea of a beautiful death. It is not just death alone. Death in Nazi cinema is never cruel. It's always beautiful. And it's pathetic. And it's heroic. It has uh, there's beautiful music, sometimes by the classic with it. There is light, a very... Uh, Temptation, yeah, temptatious use of light, and uh, it's a death which leads you to an afterlife, to a higher way or how a higher state of existence, which might be in heaven of the national heroes in a kind of national pantheon. So uh, it's it's all this in a way we know it as part of ideology of 
nationalism or of a perverted patriotism. But uh, the Nazis, uh, as they are fascists, fascinating, fascinated always in violence. Uh, so they had to combine the death and the patriotism and with with violence. And they tried to appeal to a certain death wish. You might, you might, if you look at those films today, you might even think about this Freudian idea of a death wish, uh, which is combined, uh, Freud says, there are two big forces. One is the erotic force and the other is the death wish force. So uh, in a way, you might, uh, you might see in those films that fascism from the very early beginning on knows how it will end. It, it knows subconsciously that it's not serving to a good cause, but it's serving to death. Well, let's talk about one star in particular, uh, Christina Soderbaum, uh, wife of Veit Harlan, who, as you mentioned, is one of the most skilled of the directors of that time. And you say that she was known colloquially, you know, we might refer to stars as the It Girl or something like that. And she was known as the Floating Corpse, which is yep. not something Hollywood would have ever called one of its stars. And that comes from the fact that so often she had that kind of beautiful death, as you describe. Yeah. Well, um, this is a nickname given her by the public mouth. I, I, there's not any person I know which, who invented uh, this nickname. Uh, it is a joke, yeah? Even when we said before that the Nazi cinema didn't know any irony, we have some irony in the jokes of that time. And it's an ironization on the fact that she, she is in, in nearly all the films, she did only films with her husband, and in nearly all those films she is dying, sometimes committing suicide, sometimes killed, seldom it's an accident. It's quite often that she's committing suicide and it's quite often that she's doing it in the water or with water. And. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not an expert in the symbolism of water. It, it might have something to do as well uh, with uh, this, uh, what I would call collective subconsciousness. But uh, for any reason, it was uh, it was remarkable because we have, of course, other stars and other women, female characters in Nazi films which commit suicide and die. But we have no second one who's always dying, not as popular and uh, as an A-star like she was. And as well, it's uh, kind of strange that uh, her husband is the director. Why did he want to kill her always in the films? Uh, we can ask ourselves that. So um, in, in a way, it shows, in a way, I would, my answer to that question would be that the perfect woman is the dead woman because she cannot commit sins. She is perfect. Uh, you can mourn her and you can idealize her. So the perfect woman, if it's not a mother, is a dead wife for many Nazi heroes. And we, we see uh, in, in the films not just uh, the, the dead Christina Söderbaum, but as well we see the man she's leaving behind. And they are mourning and they are idealizing and sometimes they are taking revenge like in Jesus, where she is killing herself in the water, 
and uh, uh, what is happening next is that her husband and her father are taking uh, revenge. Uh, they make the they they think that uh, the Jew Zeus is responsible for that, and uh, they they uh, at the end they kill him. Well, let's talk about something different here, which is the the hints of subversive material in some of these films. I mean, it's kind of surprising. There's quite a number of films that seem to be offering a subversive message that yes. apparently flies over Dr. Goebbels' head. I mean, just the fact of making a Titanic film at all seems a poor metaphor. Uh, but I also think of things like, I mean, Munchausen has the Cagliostro character who seems very Hitler-like with his sinister notions of you know taking over the world um you talk about a film from gustav grungens which i've forgotten the name of yeah it is it is it is the film tanz of the vulcan you mean uh, i think dance on the volcano uh, which is set in uh, france uh, 1830 uh, during the revolution and uh, yeah, in a way, uh, this is uh, one of those films. There are many more which are quite ambiguous and which are not easy to to uh, to draw an exact message out of them, uh, because uh, for us living in 2018, it is it is sometimes quite complicated to put ourselves into the shoes of someone and into the mind of someone living in 1938 or 1941. Uh, but it's important to understand how did they see a film like this. So when we have revolution in Nazi cinema, it would be too easy to uh, say, oh, here is a hidden, here is a resistance character. Uh, they must have hated revolution. No, no. Sometimes, in a way, the Nazis were identifying themselves with revolution. They were seeing themselves as, as revolutionaries against the old and against uh, the bourgeois society. Uh, and they were offering a certain equality. For sure, the equality was not for everyone. It was not for the Jews. And it was only partly for the women. But it was, in general, they were offering a kind of equal society. And uh, so they, they saw themselves as revolutionaries. And in a way, you can read this uh, Dance on the Volcano film as a film where they are celebrating a young, charismatic revolutionary. On the other hand, it is quite clear that because uh, Gründgens uh, was well known, uh, many people knew he was gay, uh, many people knew that he was not so uh, clearly a Nazi supporter, and uh, so uh, and as well the character he's playing, the things he says there, the character is a, is a gambler, is is someone who wants to fight authority, who wants to play with words. He is an ironic character, and he's uh, he's quite daring in in the challenge of power so you have a sub as you said a subversive character here and i think it, it this is a film which works in both directions and quite clearly that film uh, goebbels understood what was uh, from his point of view the problem of this uh, film and he forbid at least the song and the soundtrack which was quite popular but he forbid the disc to come out and the, uh, the text of the song to be printed. 
So uh, that is one example. But we have, uh, you're quite right, there are many films which are subversive for different reasons. Sometimes it is the director, like I said before, Keutner, it's quite clear to show that he was not a Nazi, but he wanted to work and he did not want to emigrate. So in a way, he was an opportunist uh, and he, he collaborated. But he tried as well to find distance and to find a niche to work. Another case is Georg Wilhelm Pabst, who was uh, a clearly emigrant for political reasons. He emigrated in 33. He was a well-known filmmaker in the Weimar Republic. And uh, uh, Pandora's Box with Louis Brooks is his biggest success and is maybe most famous film. But uh, he emigrated for political reasons to France, did films there, and then with a French passport as a French citizen, he uh, was just visiting his mother in the Reich when World War, Second World War broke out. And in a way, uh, maybe he should have known that this was a dangerous time to travel to Germany, but whatever. Uh, he, he was there, and his leg broke, so he had to stay there for a while, and he could not, uh, he could not go outside of the country as fast as it was necessary. So he was forced to stay. He was forced to compromise, and uh, they uh, they let him do a very unimportant film, a kind of test, uh, how he would obey, and he did. He passed the test, and then he was given a bigger project, this Paracelsus film, which you have seen the extract of the very modern dance looking almost like a kind of Michael Jackson's thriller moment in Nazi times. And uh, here in this film, uh, this is really subversive, and uh, this is one of the films where I don't understand how they could overlook it, that this is a film where he is kind of analyzing mass manipulation, and he is uh, showing mass manipulation as an illness, an illness of society, a kind of pest. And, and there is a rationalist character, and on the other side, there is an, a joker who is dangerous and a manipulator, a magician, and all this. So it is quite clearly a film which is anti-propaganda and anti-manipulation and in favor of enlightenment values. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, it is a very good film and an entertaining film. And I think maybe in the year 42, when it was finished, uh, for Goebbels, it was more important to show an entertaining film and uh, then, then to look uh, for the political message because it was not an obvious anti-Nazi message. So, and, and he wanted entertainment films. Uh, what he was caring about in the last years of the war, uh, there were some films like two films by Keutner, which he forbid for, you may say, reason of... Uh, of the mood of the film. They were too melancholic, too dark romanticist movies, yeah? like Romance in Moll, uh, which he did not allow, and uh, then as well, and he allowed later, he did, because people hear about this film. He showed the film in, in, uh, in abroad, where German soldiers and uh, Germans who were there in the countries uh, saw it, and they reported about it. So people knew there was a new film by Keutner they wanted to watch. And, and another film, Unter den Brücken, Under the Bridges, he, he really loved. He, he said it's a very, very good film, but we cannot show it now. 
I don't know what he meant with now. Did right. he think about later? Even in Christmas of 44, so uh, five months before the end. But uh, anyway, he, he did not destroy the film, which is important. At least he let it exist. And uh, he did not put uh, Koytner into a camp or a prison or something like this, uh, but he did not allow the film. So we have a lot of ambiguity and uh, kind of uh, double-mind uh, moments in uh, the times of Nazi cinema. And we have, uh, we have uh, this, this Goebbels, a fanatic monster, which was quite liberal sometimes when it came to art. Well, let's talk about it. one of the themes of, of your documentary is uh, you say at one point, what does cinema remember? You know, how, how these images stayed in, you know, the German cinema or cinema generally. I mean, obviously, at yeah. least certain things like Triumph of the Will have been seen, you know, all over the world. Other films are quite unknown to us. But I gather that at least some of them, I mean, just looking at the Amazon, the Germany Amazon site, uh, you can see that there's nice uh, restored DVD versions of things like Opfergang and Glückskinder and so on. Um, so what do you think the impact of those films on German cinema continued to be after the war? Yeah, um, I think, uh, as, as I said before, and we, it's quite clear through uh, my work with uh, the work of Krakauer, I, I, I'm absolutely sure that there is something like a collective subconsciousness. And I think in the collective German subconsciousness, for sure there are traces of those films. And the experience of, uh, of uh, the war, and as well of those films which were distracting, uh, I think uh, there, there are a lot of uh, hidden traces in our German cinema as they are in, in uh, the world cinema in general. Because we can, uh, to, to put it in, uh, in one line which is a bit provocative, it's clear that Hitler, uh, the Nazis, lost the war on a moral point of view and in political and historical ways, but they may, maybe they won it in, in the aesthetics. Because we have, not just in the Hollywood cinema, we have the Nazis as the symbol of evil. We have the iconography of Nazism and of fascism for showing the villains in, in, in superhero movies, in criminal stories everywhere. In James Bond, the James Bond villains are not always Germans, but they always have some kind of Nazi mood. And... Uh, uh, then we have the uh, look at Star Wars, uh, Lord Darth Vader uh, looks uh, black like an SS officer and he has the German helmet. Star Wars again is quoting in the last scene, is openly quoting the Riefenstahl party convention from Triumph of the Will. Uh, as well, we have this kind of dark fascination of pop culture in uh, music videos, if I, for sure in the Rammstein videos. And now I could uh, come back to David Lynch and his use of Rammstein over and over in his films. But as well, we have a uh, look at Madonna. She uh, had her Leni Riefenstahl moment and her Evita, which is just another fascist women icon, her Evita moment. And even in her Marlene Dietrich uh, quotes, uh, her Marlene Dietrich is as well a kind of blonde, ice-cold Nazi icon. And uh, so I could give you many more examples um, for uh, the iconography 
of uh, fascism and of national socialism in contemporary cinema. And uh, as well, we can find this in advertisement uh, films, uh, music videos, as I said before. And I'm not so sure that maybe if we closely, if we do look at uh, a party convention of democratic parties in Germany, in France, in the US, maybe as well, and we compare that to the Nazi party convention. Yeah, We have the music, we have the leader, we have everyone, the way the leader is shown, this personalization, uh, the way charisma is produced by music and by uh, sound atmosphere and as well, of course, by the imaging. And then we, the way uh, the camera is working, the montage is working, that they are showing the star means the political leader, and then they are showing the audience applauding. It is the same what they are doing when, when they film today the pop concert by the Stones, for example. But it's as well the same what Leni Riefenstahl did when she was filming Hitler in Nuremberg. La Paloma, oh hey, einmal wird es vorbei sein. Einmal holt uns die See und das Meer. Well, these films, you know, they're not terribly well known in the U.S. I mean, I really say the only one that's ever gotten much attention over here is Munchausen. Um, but if you were to make a case for a film just as a film, what what would you say is one that deserves being redeemed and deserves being seen outside of Germany? Oh, is there is there I one? Think, is that is that yeah. possible? Yeah, it is possible. It is possible to show them, and they should be shown. I, I would always uh, plead for watching those films. Um, there are some films which are under restriction; they are not forbidden. There is no censorship in Germany, but some of the films are restricted in the way that you have to ask uh, for and you have to explain if you want to use the material or if you want to show this publicly. But it's uh, possible. Every, every, all those films are shown publicly. And by the way, all those films, even the restricted one, they exist on DVD, even in Austria and abroad, uh, of course. But um, uh, I think we should watch them in the cinema. And the most important thing is that we need uh, kind of uh, definite and critical editions of those films. Like uh, we have some films in, the, in America, we have the great uh, Criterion Collection. We need reliable editions of all those films for a very simple reason. When we look at YouTube, for example, and other uh, open uh, access streaming services, uh, we, sometimes we see censored versions. For instance, uh, for instance Olympia by Leni Riefenstahl, was re-edited by uh, the director herself in the early 50s, and it was shortened uh, around 15 minutes were cut out. And those 15 minutes, of course, they would serve racism. They would serve Nazis. They would serve Nazi flags and all this. For sure, she's, Lena Riefenstahl was clever enough to leave Hitler a little bit in the re-edited version, because everyone knows Hitler was there and she was filming Hitler. But she's reducing Hitler, Hitler's presence in this film and other Nazi leaders in this film. So the, the original version is, as far as I know, uh, not existing in YouTube. Uh, it is always changing, so it might exist. And uh, so if anyone 
uh, is uh, just looking for the Olympia film in YouTube, uh, they might think, well, what is the problem with that film? Uh, yeah, so, and this works, this general thought works for many of the films of the Nazi time, and even worse, as some of the films don't exist on DVD or just in not reliable editions, the only way someone can watch it is to order it in Nazi networks in Sweden or in the US or somewhere else. And of course, those Nazi networks, they provide uh, their ideology. They do not provide quite often uh, the original perfect version of the film. And even the archives have sometimes problems in the archive for some film, uh, a very good film, Großstadt uh, Melodie by Wolfgang Liebenmeiner. Uh, in this film first, uh, the first version I got by uh, the Mono Foundation was a censored version because they were not aware, ah, yeah, this is something is cut out. Then later they were aware of it. But um, so uh, you have to be very careful which version and you have to compare the minutes uh, of any version and as well uh, look at the uh, at the speed, uh, if it's 25 uh, images per frame or 24 and all those problems. Sure. So we need reliable editions. And we should watch those films. I don't think the films are dangerous. Of course, they are temptatious. And, uh, but the most, the most dangerous thing would be to hide them and to make a big secret out of them, to, to build a myth out of them. We have to demysticize those films, and this we can do in showing them and in talking about them, uh, open-minded and in a free society. Why not? I believe in, in free speech and discourse. I think there are some films, there are many films which have certain, certain quality and certain value, for sure, on the visual side, the acting, sometimes the directing as well. And uh, as well, we can estimate uh, films by, for example, Eisenstein, even when we know it's Stalinist or at least Soviet propaganda in the 20s and 30s. But we can, uh, we can uh, digest them and we can see it's very good filmmaking and we can see as well sometimes Eisenstein tries to make, in, in Alexander Nevsky, for example, tries to make an anti-Stalin film in under the mask of a Stalinist film. So, uh, and this uh, goes for Nazi films as well. Um, I think that one of a very, very evil film, in a way, uh, but is as well a very good film. So uh, let's talk about Veit Harlan and about Opfergang. I think Opfergang, a melodrama over the top, is a very good and very interesting film, uh, for sure. And it's a film we can analyze and discuss over and over for a long time. I, I, I will not mention Koitner, because for me, Koitner is a marvelous director and uh, some of his best films he did during uh, the Nazi time, but he's no Nazi director. So within the Nazi directors, I think that... Uh, uh, for sure, uh, the films, uh, the the, uh, the film by Wolfgang Liebenmeiner, Großstadt Melody, which uh, was uh, mentioning before, is a very good film, which is as well this kind of ambiguous, can I say in English, vexier uh, image? Uh, does it exist? It means an image which you can uh, look at from two sides. 
and uh, it depending on the side you're looking at it uh, the message is changing and the image is changing so uh, Großstadt Melodie can be read as a total Nazi film a clear propaganda film but as well you can read it the other way around as a kind of distance attempt by the director and uh, he tries to show a film without any Nazi symbols he, he's, he's showing a free minded women, independent, not married, not serving to the Nazi ideal of a, of a married passive woman. She's active photographer in the big city, having male friends, but not always having an affair with them and so on. So it's a very interesting film. And uh, for sure, Douglas Sirk, who was uh, doing eight films under the name, his German name, Detlef Sirk, in the first years of the Nazi Reich, uh, his, his uh, films of that period are very good films, like his later films in Hollywood, and they are for sure worth to be seen. Um, Habanera, I like a lot, even when it has some moments of true uh, Nazi values in it, like the South is dangerous and uh, bringing illness and the northern women has to stay in the north and all this. Coming back to Titanic, uh, because you were mentioning before what a strange idea to do a Titanic film. It was, as far as I know, the first uh, sound uh, film on uh, the Titanic uh, accident. Uh, it was a Nazi film and it was made as an anti-British propaganda film. For sure, what Goebbels wanted to show planning this film was that the Titanic did sink just because of greedy capitalists. So it was meant as to be anti-Semite, anti-Jewish, anti-capitalist, and anti-British. But clearly enough, after Stalingrad in '43, uh, the reading of this film would change. And uh, it did change because uh, he, he needed to earn some money. So the film had been shown, not in Germany, but in abroad, in France, for example. Germans saw it, and it was quite, quite clear to take it as well as a metaphor of uh, Reich, which has to go down and sink. So in the end, do you think... Do you think there's any such thing as an innocent film during this time, or maybe Koitner is the closest to it? No, no, not even Koitner. There is no innocent film, but maybe you know we are all we are all men and women. We are all people. So are, is any of us innocent? I'm not so sure. Uh, we commit sins, uh, and for sure the sins of the Nazis uh, are much bigger than usual. And they are a dimension for their own. I don't want to compare it to other kind of private sins. But it's quite clear there is no such thing as innocence under a dictatorship. If you live under a dictatorship, if you even keep quiet, you can be uh, silently and private against it, but you keep quiet. So you're doing the minimum what the regime wants you to do, to keep quiet. If you don't resist, um, you, you cannot stay innocent. And if you are a filmmaker, there is no way of resistant cinema uh, in, in Nazi times because for doing cinema you needed money, you needed the system, you needed the allowance papers for the actors and so on. It was totally controlled. Even for Koitner, he was controlled. And uh, so Koitner is not innocent. And for sure, 
the real Nazi filmmakers are not innocent at all. Keutner is decent. This is a different thing. He's decent in the way, and as well in knowing that he cannot be innocent. But he's decent in his behavior. He tried something. He, he, was, uh, he was no coward. Others are cowards. And uh, Keutner was kind of brave. He tried to check out his possibilities, and much more was possible. What we can see as well in Nazi cinema is that under a dictatorship, you cannot be innocent, but many things are possible. We can see if we compare two big stars, Hans Albers and Heinz Rühmann, they both had Jewish wives, and they both were forced to work in propaganda films. But Heinz Rühmann divorced his Jewish wife. Hans Albers did not. Heinz Rühmann uh, gave in and worked in propaganda films. Hans Albers, uh, in the biggest propaganda films, he found ways to avoid it, even with brute lies. One, one film, Wunschkonzert, they wanted to cast him, and he just did not answer the letter. And three days later, he said, I was drunk. I did not, I could not get up for three <laughs> days, and stuff like this, yeah? And because he was so popular, he knew he had the possibility to do it. He would not go into prison immediately. But for sure, it was not, there was not a funny moment for any one of them. Yeah? There were other actors a bit less popular than Albers, a bit less known. They were forced to, to become a soldier immediately within one day because they, uh, they had uh, told a joke, an anti-Hitler joke, uh, yeah, during, at, at the set. And it was even worse. Sometimes they were just killed. And uh, sometimes they were sent into camps uh, or other things, and uh, death camps. So uh, for sure, uh, it, it was risky. But some people took some risks and others did not. And so at least I want the, the, the audience of my film to be able to different, differentiate a little bit and to see that there is not one Nazi film, one Nazi actor. There are many, like there were many Nazis. And uh, it, is, uh, it helps to, to, to give it a closer look and to relook at it, as well to, to see traces of all that, as well of this opportunist behavior, for example, in our times, and to understand propaganda in our times, because, as I said before, I, I believe... Uh, not in the simple Nazi way, but of course, even in democracies, we have moments of propaganda, and we all, not to mention any persons now, but we all know what fake news means, what uh, uh, alternative truth uh, means, and all that. So uh, we, I, I think it's quite obvious uh, that uh, Hitler's Hollywood has as well a message for today. <laughs> Thanks to my guest, Rudiger Suxland. 
Hitler's Hollywood and an earlier film of his, From Caligari to Hitler, are available now from Kino Lorber. There will be links in the show post at nitrateville.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss a new episode. And if you're new here, check out past episodes, too. You might find the one about Pandora's box and the director Frank Visbar, who left Germany in the 1930s, especially interesting. I'll be back with a new one in a few weeks. Thanks. Thanks.